0: We're going to continue our series on spiritual gifts this morning. I'm going to move rather quickly through the first 10 slides, so buckle your seatbelt, hang on, and try to take it in. I was thinking about the spiritual gifts and realized that the best place to start and the best thing to talk about is the Lord Jesus. Jesus. In Isaiah 61, and you read this in Luke chapter 4, okay, so Jesus stands up in the synagogue at Nazareth and he quotes what I'm about to read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, we can go on and on with this, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read. But I want to point out clearly that the Spirit came upon Jesus. However we understand that, that's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And this is referred to by pretty much everybody as the beginning of his ministry. And so Jesus reaches about 30 years of age, Luke tells us. Jesus stands up in his hometown of the synagogue, and this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. He says, the Lord has anointed me, and the Lord has sent me. And I want you to remember these things, if you can, as we go through this study on spiritual gifts, because I believe there is a lot here in these passages about Jesus that can instruct us as to a proper understanding of spiritual gifts. It all begins with the Lord Jesus. He is the one who received the Spirit, He's anointed, He sent, and then look at all of the things that He did. I should have used a lighter green, I think. But anyway, there's a lot of action, a lot of activity. There are things that accompanied or things that were manifestations of the Spirit of the Lord being on Him. So, this worked the first time I hit it, but not so much now. May have a battery problem. Thank you. You just, uh, let's just get in sync and go, okay? Other passages, prophecies about Jesus. Isaiah 11, beginning of verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are some of the same kinds of things that you're going to read about in the New Testament when you read about spiritual gifts. But it, it begins here in prophetic words about Jesus. These are gifts, these are works of the Spirit in Him as He lived out His ministry on this earth. All right, next. Thank you. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom I soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice. And then it repeats that at the end of verse 3. So once again, the spirit is on Jesus. The spirit is with Jesus. Uh, let's continue. The Lord God has sent me and his spirit, he teaches you, he leads you in the way that you should go. And so there are other passages that we could look at, but as we examine these prophetic words in the book of Isaiah, we realize that Jesus' work with the Spirit is where we ought to focus our attention, and the Spirit upon Him, the Spirit in Him, there is no doubt that the things that the Lord received of the Spirit, the gifts that came to him, the manifestations or work of the Spirit in the life of Jesus had to do with him carrying out the will of God and fulfilling his ministry. Okay, So that's something we need to file away and remember. Whatever we learn, whatever we talk about, whatever we read about the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament we can understand that it is for the sake of accomplishing the will of God. It is for the ministries that God has called us to. Now, Joel chapter 2, and this is quoted in Acts chapter 2. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, Peter said, all this stuff going on around you that you see and hear, this is what it is. It is what Joel talked about. Well, Joel talked about it in Joel 2, verse 28 and 29. It came to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters, your old men, your young men, males, females. He would pour the Spirit out on them all. That is a prophecy, obviously, about what began in Acts chapter 2, at what we refer to as the birthday of the church, the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus had told his disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And then he tells them where. And so all of this fits together with what we read in Isaiah about the Spirit being on Jesus. Jesus then promised and poured out his Spirit on his disciples, on his followers, for the same purposes that he himself had received the Spirit. So they would be a witness of him. They would carry on his work. Jesus said that they would do the works that he would do, even greater works than he did. And so the work that the body of Christ has been called to do by God, God gifts, he provides, he equips and trains the body of Christ to do all of these works. And that's a very important for us to understand that. The outpouring of the Spirit signaled the end of the Jewish economy, the old ways, the old system, and it initiated a new creation, a new work that God was going to do by bringing his kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, you read about the wind, the fire, the tongues of fire, and it filled the house. Well, there's a lot of prophetic fulfillment in all of this. Uh, We've talked about in previous sermons about the spirit, the wind, and the breath are all the same word in Hebrew. And so when the wind comes in, it is signifying the breath of God is coming in upon the new church, the followers of Jesus. They're given life, just like God breathed into Adam the breath of life when he created man. God is creating a new man here. He is creating a new race here. He is creating his people here in the spirit of Christ and so all of this is happening in Acts chapter 2 just like Joel said it would the statement that it filled the house there's a lot of prophetic fulfillment and all of that in fact that throughout the story of the Old Testament you read about God telling his people to build the tabernacle and we're going to revisit that again in a few moments But he told them to build the tabernacle, that's where they would meet God, God would come and meet them at the tabernacle. He told them later to build the temple, that's where God would meet his people at the temple. You want to meet God, you go to the temple. And then a lot of times I'm afraid we fall short and we miss what actually happened when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. Uh, A lot of times we think the only thing in play there was Jesus was upset because they were making merchandise and making money off God and spiritual things. There's a whole lot more to that. Who in the world do you think had the right and the authority to walk into the temple and do something like that in the first place? One who is of God. One who supersedes the temple. We don't read the verses right after that, that simply say, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. I will raise it up again. What does that mean? He's talking about his resurrection. That's what it's talking about. And in fact, Jesus is the new temple. You want to meet God? You don't go to the tabernacle today. You want to meet God? You don't go in a temple today. In fact, Acts seven forty-eight says, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. You want to meet God? How do you meet God? Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes into the Father except through me." You want to meet God? You got to go through Jesus. And the body of Christ is the temple of God. We are the temple of God. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 All of these passages teach us that the church is the temple of God. We are the temple of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. You want to meet God? Look inside. He has given us His Spirit. He is in us. He is with us. He is present. And so that's the significance of that statement. At Pentecost, It was celebrated by the Jews because it was the giving of the law. But now it's the giving of the Spirit. There is no life in the law. There's death in the law. No one could keep the law perfectly. You sin, you die. You break the law, you die. That was the old economy. The new one is life in the Spirit, Romans 8, the first four verses. Pentecost was the celebration of the first of the harvest. And in verse 41 of Acts 2, 3,000 people were saved, a new harvest, new fruit for God. A new covenant was established through Jesus' death, resurrection, and his ascension. And here Jesus fulfills his promise to his disciples to pour his spirit out upon them. So this morning I want you to know Jesus is still Lord. He is still on his throne. The gospel is still being preached, the kingdom is still spreading, and the mission of carrying out the gospel and doing the work of God to accomplish his will is still taking place And the means and the ways by which God chose to do it through his son and through his church is still being done today by God. That's the backdrop of all this spiritual gifts business, okay? Don't get off on a tangent. Don't get lost talking about spiritual gifts and lose sight of the big picture and the very reason why spiritual gifts are given. And this is it. So the empowering of the Spirit is still for all believers, past and present. Look carefully at Acts chapter 2, verse 39. It says it explicitly. God did not pour His Spirit out on the day of Pentecost to begin His work in the church of this new creation, establishing His new covenant, and then take the Spirit back up into heaven. He did not do that. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. This is such a fascinating statement. We probably need to preach a whole sermon on that one. So also is Christ. There is diversity in God, in the Trinity, in the Godhead three in one, there is diversity, and so it is in the body of Christ. There is diversity in the body of Christ, and he explains that in the next verse. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Part of the whole deal about the new covenant and the new creation is that God does not just accept people of the Jewish race. He accepts people of every nation. The gospel is for all, it's for everyone. That's what the kingdom of God entails, everybody. And so the spirit is poured out on all flesh, Joel said. And when we are baptized, and the language here at the end of verse 13 sounds almost identical, to Galatians 3 verse 27 say, when it says by faith we're all baptized into Christ. There is neither and it goes and repeats all of that states all of that who he's talking about. So in the body of Christ hey we got men we got women we got old people we got young people we got rich people we got poor people we have educated we have uneducated we have people that are of various races. We have people that are slaves to any number of things. We have people that are free in any number of ways. We have great diversity in the body of Christ. And somehow, by the work of a holy, almighty God, we are one. And we are one because we all drink of the Spirit of God. Our experience, our life in the Spirit is what unites us and binds us together. We are one in the body of Christ because of the Spirit. Romans 12, verses 4 through 6. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That's another phrase that we need to spend some time discussing and studying and thinking about. Though many, we are one body in Christ and individually, listen to this, members one of Another, what do you think that means? We are members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So, these passages teach us the body of Christ is one, and again, we need to think through what that phrase means and why the Holy Spirit calls the church the people of God, the disciples of Christ, why are we even called the body of Christ? Ephesians and Colossians both tell us Jesus is the head, the church is his body. We are the body of Christ. You are a member, a part, a body part, if you will, of Christ. I am a body part of Christ. All of us are body parts and that's why 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 goes on and talks about this analogy, specifically talking about hands, feet, the nose, the eyes, literally refers to body parts and saying that's the way it is in the church is there any part of your body that is unimportant i'm telling you have you ever lost a nail i mean it came off it's not fun it is not fun it is painful and it affects the whole body Have you ever stumped your little toe when you got up in the night to go to the bathroom if you're old enough to have that problem? (laughs) I have, I am, and I have, and it hurts. We don't want to lose any body parts. They're important. God made us that way. You know, people talk about the appendix or the gallbladder and things like, oh, you don't need that. Well, God put it there, so I think I want it, okay? You know, I'm just saying. The body is one. The many are one body, and therefore all eat of one loaf at the Lord's table. That's what 1 Corinthians ten seventeen says. We need to get our heads around the concept of the body. We are one. There are things that we do that indicate that. Number one, we accept our differences. We accept our diversity. We accept that we have different gifts. We accept that. We accept one another, no matter what body part a person is. Study the passage. Study 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It goes into detail about different body parts their functions, how different body parts are to relate to and treat one another. We need to learn those things. We need to practice those things. But before he said all of that, two chapters earlier in chapter 10, he made a reference to the body, and he says we all show we are one body when we all partake of the one loaf that's why we commune together the Bible tells us to because when we all share that bread when we all share that cup it is a divine proclamation it is obedience to the divine authority. Authority, the will of God it shows what the church is all about we are one in Christ what makes us one is our common experience of the Spirit furthermore we read in Ephesians 4 15 and 16 rather speaking the truth in love we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the way this body concept is to work is just recognize, study, look at how the human body works. God is telling us something. He's revealing a spiritual truth when you look at your body, which the Bible says is fearfully and wonderfully made. As you get older, weird things will happen to you. They are happening to me all the time. One of the latest and most strangest things, and I guess I'm going to blame Jonathan if you saw the video of getting the ring off my finger, But when, when I bend this ring finger, when I bend this ring finger like that and then straighten them out like that, it hesitates and then just boing. It's the weirdest thing. It doesn't really hurt. It's awkward. It feels weird. But it's like, why? It doesn't work like the other fingers work. There's obviously something wrong, something damaged about a ligament or something in there that's not working right. It's no fun when your body doesn't work right. Ask Charles. Got an eye problem. Had to have surgery this week. It's a problem, isn't it, Charles? Yes, it's a problem. That's why he's trying to get it fixed. When the body starts messing up, the body starts breaking down, the body doesn't function like it was created to function, that is a big problem. And that's why the body of Christ needs to be united. That was the point of the letter. The whole point of the Corinthian letter is Paul begins in chapter 1 saying, I've heard there's divisions here. And then in a couple of chapters later, he talks about the, the divisions. Some of you follow this one. Some of you follow that one. He keeps talking about it. Throughout the letter, he makes reference to it. In 1 in, uh, Corinthians 11, when he gets to the Lord's Supper, he talks about their divisions. All of these things are there because it's a problem with God. God has a problem when the body is not functioning right. And that's why a lot of what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians is, is corrective, it is instructive, it is helping them understand how the body is to be one and function properly and it's about unity. We're to be united and accepting our diversity, accepting our gifts, accepting one another, making sure all the body parts work as they're supposed to work, as God created them to work, as God placed us in the church, as God gifted us, as God provided for us to do the work he's called us to do. It's critical. And that's why we need to get serious about this concept of the gifts that the Spirit gives the church. We need to understand them, we need to accept them, we need to acknowledge them, and we need to implement these gifts. That's how the body grows to maturity. We don't have a mature body, we don't have a mature church until we accomplish the plan that God has for the church. It's how Jesus himself worked, and it's how his body is supposed to work. Now, you're the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? In fact, James 3 verse 1 says, Let not many of you be teachers. Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? I think you know the answer. Apostles and prophets, according to Ephesians 2:20, 1 Corinthians 12, a foundational role in establishing churches. Evangelists. They took the gospel and preach the word of god to people in all kinds of places prophets there are prophets in the church 1st corinthians 14 that appear to be somewhat different than the prophets that the, made up the foundation of the church we need to study that more we need to think about that more was there two different offices of prophecy in the church Pastors or teaching pastors in Ephesians 4 verse 11, 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 3. These are roles, these are positions, these are works that God gave to the church. A lot of interesting things there. We're going to talk about some of that further. Spiritual gifts are for mission, growth, and maturity. That's what we've looked at so far. What would this look like today? What would this look like in the church? Number one, the church is to be spirit-filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Well, in order to be filled with the Spirit, we need to be open to the Spirit. We need to surrender to the Spirit. We need to welcome the Spirit. We need to pray for the Spirit. We need to be aware of the Spirit. The Bible talks about spiritual gifts, but it also talks about fruit, of the Spirit. I wonder sometimes if churches need to be more concerned with the fruit of the Spirit. People get concerned and interested with the gifts of the Spirit, but not so much the fruit. And then in other churches, it's the other way around. They're very concerned and interested in the fruit of the Spirit but don't seem to have much interest at all in the gifts of the Spirit. Well, how about a balance here? How about both? How about we have the fruit of the Spirit, we acknowledge what the Spirit works in our lives in all the ways that we read about in Galatians 5, and we also accept the gifts of the spirit so we spirit filled might mean spirit gifted but it would also mean what the spirit produces comes out of our lives if a person is not led by the spirit walking by the spirit and doesn't have the fruit of the spirit manifest in their life then we got a problem regardless of their giftedness. Okay? Spiritual gifts in and of themselves do not mandate or determine their use in the body. Because there are other equally important works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. Are we on the same page? Are we together? Are we united? Are we one? That matters. It matters. And maturity in Christ. I think there's a balance here with spiritual maturity and the use of spiritual gifts. That's part of the problem in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 there was spiritual immaturity going on greatly while people were exercising spiritual gifts. Doesn't work that way. That's why Paul corrected them. Gifts and character. Part of the fruit of the Spirit gets into this idea of spiritual maturity and character of a person. You look in 3 John, John speaks well of Demetrius, of Diotrephes, he said he's in it for himself. That's a problem. There's a difference. A difference in the attitude, a difference in the character, a difference in the person. All of these things come into play because we are collectively the body of Christ. And there are different gifts in different contexts. This is something else we need to study. We need to talk about We need to discuss. In Acts chapter 6, Philip, because he's filled with the Spirit, is called to to wait tables using the words of the Holy Spirit. Nothing negative about that. That's what the text says. That's what it calls it, waiting tables. The apostles could have done that. They could have. They could have waited the tables, but they didn't. They had the church select men to do that work. But then, later on in in chapter 8, I mean 16 rather, chapter 8, chapter 16, chapter 21, you have Philip as an evangelist. He's not waiting tables in a different context, is he? Does that mean he lost the gift of waiting tables? I doubt it. What does it mean? It means that when God called him and put him in a different context, he had a different mission for him, and he used his gifts to accomplish that purpose in that context. We need to be aware of all of these things. A man might be an elder in one congregation. He might not be in another congregation. Because you see, there are lots of things to consider. The works, the service, or ministries. All of these things that 1 Corinthians 12 begins with. And so hurriedly in closing, I want to take us back to the tabernacle. I think this is so important. Remember, the tabernacle is a type of the church. Okay? That's where you go to meet God. That's where God dwelled. He came to meet the people. Now, in the construction of the tabernacle, Exodus 28:3, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. Whoa, what? God filled people with a spirit of skill. God equipped people to build the tabernacle. He picked certain people. He put skills within them to accomplish the purpose of building the tabernacle. Exodus 31. See, I have called... By name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, cutting stones for setting, carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I've appointed with him Aholiab, the son of, what's his name, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all men, able men, ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. God called this one. He appointed this other guy to be with him. And he equipped this man to teach others the gift that he himself had given him. God had a purpose, He had a plan, He was building a church. And he equipped and empowered different people to do different things. And that's what he does today. That's what he does today. Should the woods craftsman been upset because he wasn't a stonemason? Should the stonemason been upset Because he didn't work with material, make the curtains. Think about it. All of these workers were needed to build the tabernacle. And God gave them skills. He called them, He appointed them, all of these things. It talks about those who had willing hearts. Listen whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Verse 2, Moses called them in every craftsman in whom, listen, in whose mind the Lord had put skill. Isn't that something? In whose mind the Lord had put skill skill. Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. So what do we learn from all of these passages about the building of the tabernacle? We learn the Lord calls people to do his work. That's true in the body of Christ. The Lord appoints people to certain roles. That's true in the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12 through 14. The Lord provides skills to do the work. The Lord inspires people and puts it in their hearts to respond to the call, to do the work. The Lord gave people a heart to do the work. And so what you have is a congregation of Spirit-filled, Spirit-inspired, Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered people. That all working together, they built the tabernacle. And today, all working together, they build the church. Praise team, come on up. This is a beautiful concept, folks. It is the will of God. It is the plan of God. Do we have questions? Sure we do. I mentioned that last week. Do we need to study things out further? Absolutely. Do we need to sit down maybe for a few hours and talk about some of these things and try to answer our questions and try to consider how, where do we go from here as a church? Absolutely. And the Lord willing, we will do that. But I hope you've been given enough today to open the Bible, study these passages Let's all learn together, let's grow together, and let's build what God wants us to build.